Hello and welcome to the Daily Bible Reading Show. I'm reading Deuteronomy chapter 32. Uh, no, actually I'm not. I'm reading John Calvin's commentary on Deuteronomy chapter 32. And this is his take on verse 1. Give ear, O ye heavens. Moses commences in a strain of magnificence, lest the people should disdain the song with their usual pride, or even reject it altogether, being exasperated by its severe censures and reproaches. For we well know how the world naturally longs to be flattered, and that no strain can be gratifying to it unless it tickles and soothes the ear with praise. But Moses here not only inveighs bitterly against the vices of the people, but with the utmost possible vehemence stigmatizes their perverse nature, their utterly corrupt morals, their obstinate ingratitude and incorrigible contumacy. Moreover, he desired that these accusations, whether he rendered their name detestable, should daily echo from their tongues, and thus they became still more offensive. It was therefore requisite that their impatience should be bridled, as it were, in order that they might patiently and humbly receive these just reproofs, however severe they might be. If, therefore, they should repudiate the song or should turn a deaf ear to it, he declares at the outset that heaven and earth should be or would be witnesses of their prodigious obtuseness. Nay, he turns and addresses himself to heaven and earth and thus signifies that it was worthy of the attention of all creatures, even although they were without intelligence or feeling. For it is a hyper mode of expression when he assigns the faculty of hearing and being instructed to the senseless elements just as Isaiah when he would intimate that he found none to give heed to him amongst the whole people in like manner appeals to the heavens and the earth and even summons them to bear witness to the prodigious iniquity that there should be less of intelligence amongst the whole people than in oxen and asses. For it is but a meager exposition which some give of these words that they are used by metonymy for angels and men. Verse 2. My doctrine shall drop as the rain. Some, as I think improperly, here resolve the future tense into the optative mode, mood. For in this splendid Eulogium he rather celebrates in order to commend his doctrine, the fruitfulness which is actually imparted to it by the Holy Spirit, then asks for it to be given to him, and my readers must at once perceive that such a request would have been by no means seasonable. He therefore compares his speech to rain or dew, as if he had said that if only the people were like the soil in a state of softness, in preparation he would deliver doctrine to them, which would irrigate them onto abundant fruitfulness. Although this expression refers especially and cut exokin to the song, still its force and propriety extends to all divine teaching for god never speaks except to render men fruitful in good works just as by instilling succulency and vigor into the earth by means of rain he makes it fertile for the production of fruit but like the rocks and stones which imbibe no moisture when the most abundant rains so many are hindered by their own perversity from being fertilized by spiritual irrigation Wherefore, Moses indirectly throws the blame upon the Israelites if the doctrine of this song should drop upon them in vain. Verse 3, Because I will publish the name of the Lord. 
He signifies by these words that if there were any spark of piety in the Israelites, it must be manifested by their welcoming this address, wherein the majesty of God shines forth. The first clause of the verse therefore stands last in order, since it is an assignment of a reason for the other. For when he exhorts them that they should ascribe to God the glory he deserves, he inculcates upon them obedience and attention, as if he had said that unless they reverently submit themselves to his teaching, God would be defrauded of this due honor. And this he confirms by adding as a reason that he will sincerely and faithfully publish the name of God. For the, work invoke, for the word invoke is not used here as in many other passages, but is equivalent to making a profession of God. Moses then declares himself to be his proclaimer, in order that under cover of his most holy name, he may awaken attention to his words. Verse 4, his work is perfect. Those who take these expressions generally and without particular reference to this passage not only obscure their meaning, but also lessen the force of the doctrine they contain. Let us then understand that his perfection of God's works, the rectitude of his ways, etc., are contrasted with the rebellion of the people. For if there were anything in God's works imperfect and inarranged, if his mode of dealing were deficient in rectitude, if his truth were doubtful, if, in a word, there were anything wanting, then there would have been a natural excuse why the people should have sought for something better than they found in him, since the desire of t obtaining that which is best is the serving of no reprehension. Lest, then, the Israelites should offer any such pretext, Moses anticipates them. Uh, anticipates them. Before he begins to treat of the wicked ingratitude of the people, he lays down this principle, that they were not induced to transfer their affections elsewhere by any deficiency in God. The general statement is indeed true in itself and may be applied to various purposes, but we must consider what the object of Moses here is, namely, to remove from the people every pretext for their impious and perfidious rebellion, and this in order that their amazing folly may be more apparent when they forsake the fountain of living waters and hew them out cisterns with holes in them, as God himself complains in Jeremiah 2.13. We perceive, therefore, that every honorable distinction which is here attributed to God brands the people with a corresponding mark of ignominy, ignominy uh, in that they had knowingly and voluntarily deprived themselves of the plenitude of all good things which might have been enjoyed by them had they not alienated themselves from God. God's work is spoken of not only with reference to the creation of the world, but to the whole course of his providence, as if it were said that nothing could be discovered in God's works which could be found fault with. Now, this perfection is not perceptible in every individual thing, for even vermin are God's creatures, and among men some are blind, some lame, some deaf, some and others mutilated in one of their members, and many fruits also never arrive at maturity. Yet we plainly see that it is foolish and misplaced to bring forward such questions as these as objections to the perfection of God, here celebrated by Moses inasmuch as the very defects and blemishes of our bodies tend to this object, that God's glory may be made manifest. 
The next statement that all his ways are just conveys a similar truth, for it is well known that the word mishfat, mishfat is used for uh, rectitude and works and ways are synonymous. The latter part of the verse is a confirmation of the former part, since Moses signifies in both that all who censure God may be clearly convicted of petulant impiety, since supreme justice shines forth in all his acts. The words I've rendered God as truth, others construe with the genitive case, a God of truth. Either is true and agreeable to the usage of scripture, but the apposition is more emphatic, which declares that God is not only true, but the truth itself. At any rate, this applies to the persons who pay entire allegiance to the word of God, for their expectations shall never be frustrated. Thus the people are indirectly reproved for their unbelief in that they deserted God, whose faithfulness was not only tried and proved, but who is the very fountain of truth. Although what follows, that there is no iniquity in God, seems to some to have but little force. It is nevertheless of great importance, for we well know how often men are so absurd in their subterfuges as in a manner to arraign God instead of themselves. And although they do not dare to accuse him openly, still they do not hesitate to acquit themselves and thus to cast a direct obloquy upon him. Elsewhere, therefore, God inquires by his prophet, what iniquity the people had found in him, Jeremiah 2.5, and in another place expostulates with them because he was loaded with their hatred and abuse as if he dealt unjustly with such sinners, Ezekiel 18.2 and 5. When therefore he vindicates himself from such calumnies, it follows that no blame attaches itself to him, but that the wickedness of those who turn away from him is abundantly condemned. Verse 5. They have corrupted themselves. Moses now invades unhesitatingly against the perfidy of the people and gives loose to their most unmeasured upbraidings. For if God be just and true, then it was plain enough that the Israelites were a depraved and perverse nation. This perverse nation, he says, has corrupted itself towards him, namely him whom he has just lauded for his perfect justice and faithfulness. And he accuses them of having basely prostituted to every sort of sin the chastity which they had promised to God. There is no doubt but that they were sorely wounded by these epithets and would have been transported with rage had they not seen that God's incomparable servant, when he had now been called upon to die, by God's command, spoke as it were from heaven. The voice, therefore, of the dying man restrained of their pride, so that they did not now dare to oppose him as a mortal. And afterward, when the condemnation had been assented to by public authority and by general accord, they were less at liberty to vent their madness against him. He introduces, by way of anticipation, the statement that they were not his children. For else they might obviously have made the objection that the sacred race of Abraham, which God had adopted, should be dealt with less reproachfully. Moses therefore declares that they are not his children because they are a perverse nation. For although their, their adoption always stood firm, still its efficacy were, was restricted to the elect part of them, so that God, without breaking his covenant, might reject the general body. But to explain the matter more clearly, 
It must be borne in mind that the Spirit on different grounds at one time assigns the name of God's children to hypocrites, at another takes it away. For sometimes it is an aggravation of their criminality when they are called the children of Abraham and Jacob as well as of God, an instance of which will soon occur. Here, however, in order that they may cease to glory without cause, they are said not to be children, because they are degenerate and therefore disinherited by God, so as no longer to retain their honorable position. In this sense, Moses declares that they are not children, as having cast off God from being their father. It is added that this was done with their spot or disgrace, unless it is thought preferable to take it that they were corrupted by their spots or by their sins to which I willingly assent, although I do not reject the other sense, namely that their alienation from God had rendered them ignominious or that they had contracted disdain or of disgrace by their faithlessness. Verse 6, do ye thus requite the Lord? In order to expose the ingratitude of the people to greater infamy, he now begins to commemorate the benefits whereby God had laid them under obligation to himself. For the more liberally God deals with us, the more earnest ought to be the piety of awakened in our hearts, nay, his goodness, as soon as we have tasted of it ought to draw us at once to him. Now God, although he has always bountifully bountiful towards the whole human race, had in a peculiar manner showered down an immense abundance of his bounty upon that people. This then Moses alleges and shows how basely ungrateful they had been. He first postulates with them interrogatively, asking them whether this was a fitting return for God's especial blessings, and then proceeds to enumerate them. He inquires of them then whether God was not their father from the time when he had honored them with the distinction of his adoption. And under this single head, he comprehends many things because this source preceded where whatever blessings God had conferred upon them. Not, however, to examine every point with the accuracy it deserves, what more binding obligation could be imagined than that God should have chosen one nation for himself out of the whole world whose father he should be by special privilege. For although all human beings, since they are created in the image of God, are sometimes called his children, still to be accounted his children was the special privilege of the sons of Abraham. And in order to prove that this was not a natural but an acquired dignity, Moses immediately afterward explains in what way God was their father, viz. that he purchased, made, and prepared them. The foundation and origin, then, was the gratuitous good pleasure of God when he took them to be his own peculiar people. Elsewhere, indeed, his second purchase of them is mentioned when he redeemed them from Egypt. Here, however, God, sorry, Moses goes back farther, viz. to the covenant made with Abraham, whereby they were separated from other nations, as will presently more clearly appear. I reject as not in harmony with the context, the translation which some give the word kana, that is to possess. In the same sense, it is added that they were made by God, which does not refer to the general creation, but only to the privilege of adoption, whereby they became God's new work, 
and in which another form was imparted to them, in which sense also he called their framer or maker. He is called their framer or maker. Elsewhere also when the prophet says, Know ye that the Lord, he is God, it is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. Psalm 100 verse 3. He undoubtedly magnifies that special prerogative whereby God has distinguished the sons of Abraham above all other races. For since the fall of Adam had brought disgrace upon all his posterity, God restores those whom he separates as his own, so that their condition may be better than that of all other nations. At the same time, it must be remarked that this grace of renewal is effaced in many who have afterwards profaned it. Consequently, the church is called God's work and creation in two senses, that is, uh, generally with uh, respect to its outward calling and especially with respect to spiritual regeneration. As far as regards the elect, for the covenant of grace is common to hypocrites and true believers. On this ground, all whom God gathers in his church are indiscriminately said to be renewed and regenerated, but the internal renovation belongs to believers only, whom Paul therefore calls God's workmanship, created unto good works which God had prepared, Ephesians 2.10. The same is the tendency of the third word, which may, however, be taken for to establish. Although I prefer to follow the more received sense, a viz that God had prepared his people as the artificer fashions and fits his work. Verse 7. Remember the days of old. This is an explanation of the preceding verse. For Moses again shows how God had acquired his people, viz, because he had chosen to separate them from other nations according to his own good pleasure. But since the Israelites might be inflated by their present superiority, they are reminded of their origin, and Moses commands them not to consider what they now are, but also from whence they had been taken. And with this view, he says, remember the old times. Ask the elders. For we know how men, when they do not reflect that whatever they have proceeded from God, as is held, as it were, at will, are blinded by their dignity, so as not only to despise others, but also to exalt themselves against the author of all good things. Moses, in order to subdue this arrogance, says that all people were alike under the hand and power of God and thus that their diversity was not in their original nature but derived from elsewhere, from God's free choice. In the word behankel, <laughs> there is some ambiguity for some translated. When the Most High divided the world, the earth, to the nations, and though I do not reject this, still I prefer the meaning more in accordance with the context. For Moses says the same thing twice over, and the second clause is the explanation of the first. He says, therefore, that God distributed nations as an inheritance is divided, and that this is more clearly repeated when he mentions the separation of the sons of Adam. When in latter part it is said that he set bounds to the nations according to the number of the children of Israel, it is commonly explained that he set bounds to the nations in such sort that the habitation of the sons of Abraham was secured to them. Some of the Hebrews take it in a more restricted sense that in the distribution of the world, so much was given to the seven nations of Canaan as should be sufficient for the children of Israel. In my opinion, however, his meaning is that the whole arrangement of the world, the object which God had in view was to provide for his elect people, for although his bounty extended to all, still he had such regard for his own, 
that chiefly on their account, his care also extended to others. The word number is expressly employed as if Moses had said that however small a portion of the human race, the posterity, of Abraham might be, nevertheless the number was before God's eyes when he ordered the state of the whole world. Unless it be preferred to take the word misfar for a ratio, but it will not be unsuitable to the passage to understand it that this small body was so precious to God that he arranged the whole distribution of the world with a view to their welfare. Some refer to it uh, to the calling of the Gentiles as if Moses had said that the empire of the whole world was destined to the seed of Abraham because it was to be propagated through all the regions of the world. But this is altogether erroneous, for nothing is here indicated but the distinction formally conferred upon one nation. Verse 9. For the Lord's portion is his people. This is the main point that God was moved by nothing but his own good pleasure to make so much of his people who had been derived from a common origin with all others. For when he says that Jacob was the portion of Jehovah and a lot of his inheritance, he does not mean that there was anything better in them than in others, but he assigns the reason why God preferred this one nation to the rest of mankind because he took it to himself as his hereditary portion, which dignity depends upon his gratuitous election. Verse 10, he found him in the desert land. If the intention of Moses had been to record all the instances of God's paternal kindness towards the people, he must have commenced from the time of Abraham. Like the prophet who, when presenting a complete narrative in the Psalms, begins from that original covenant which God had made in the fathers and also introduces the benefits which he had conferred upon them when they were but few in number and strangers in the land. When they went from one nation to another, yet he suffered no man to do them wrong and reproved kings for their sakes. But Moses, studying brevity, deemed it sufficient to bring forward a more recent and more notorious blessing. Nay, he omits the early part of the deliverance and only makes mention of the desert. He says then that God found them in the desert, not because he then first began to take pity upon them since they had been previously rescued from the tyranny of Pharaoh by his marvelous power and had passed the Red Sea dry shod, but because it was profitable for them to set before their eyes how they had been extricated from the deep abyss of death in order that they might be more readily acknowledged this to have been as it were the beginning of their life. For what was that waste and barren desert in which not a crumb of bread nor a drop of water was to be found, but a grave to swallow up a thousand lives? And therefore it is further called the devastation of horror. The sui is that it was a kind of type of resurrection, not from one death only, but from innumerable deaths, that the people should have escaped from it in safety that they should have done so, even had their march through it been straight and speedy, could not have been the case without a miracle. But inasmuch as they wandered therein for 40 years, our minds can hardly comprehend a hundredth part of the miracles, which followed one upon the other. Thus the word led about is not superfluous, for God's power was far more conspicuous than if they had, been, they had flown swiftly through the air. I apply the same meaning to what follows. He instructed him. 
for some in my opinion improperly refer it to the law whereas it rather relates to the teaching of experience for there was manifold and no ordinary instruction in all these acts of bounty and punishment wherein God as it were put forth his hand and manifested his glory two similitudes follow to express God's love mingled with solicitude more than paternal First, he says that God no less anxiously protected them from all injury and annoyance that everyone is wont to protect the pupil of his eye, which is the most tender part of the body, and against the injury of which the greatest precautions are taken. And David also, when requesting that he might be kept safe under the special guardianship of God, uses the same expression, Psalm 17 verse 8. Secondly, God compares himself to an eagle which not only fosters her young ones under her outspread wings, but also indulgently, with maternal tenderness, tempts them to fly. It would be unseasonable to enter here into more subtle philosophical discussions respecting the nature of the eagle. The Jews, who are wont to trifle hazardously with things they do not understand, have invented fables respecting this passage, which have no relation to the meaning of Moses, who unquestionably spoke of the eagle as he might of any other bird. Nor can it be doubted but that Christ, when he compares himself to a hen, desired to express the same sedulous care. Uh, Matthew 23, 37. How often he says, Would I have gathered the children together, thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her ch chickens under her wings, and ye would not. If, however, any should choose to apply here what Aristotle writes respecting the eagle, I would not stand in his way. Although I do not think Moses had anything in his mind beyond what these words naturally express. And surely that which at once occurs to us ought to be sufficient for us, that we ought to be ravished with just admiration of God's inestimable goodness and indulgence, when he condescends so to stoop to us as to protect us with his wings, like a bird, and hovering before us to instruct and accustom to us to follow him, in which latter words are more than maternal anxiety to teach us is represented. Verse 12, so the Lord alone did lead hive. This is spoken by anticipation in order to take away every pretext from the Israelites provided they should seek, according to their custom, to mingle their superstition with the pure service of God. For when they were bringing in from all quarters God of various nations, this was the excuse they commonly made, that God was not thus despoiled of his due honor, and hence it came to pass, that they permitted themselves to heap together a multitude of false gods, whom they worshipped as their patrons. But Moses anticipates them, and declares that God, having no need of external aid, had not associated with, some, with himself any strange gods in his preservation of the people. Hence it follows that whatever gods the people introduced, they transfer to them the honor due to the one true God. Let us then learn from this passage that unless God be served without a rival, religion is altogether perverted by the impious admixture. Verse 13, he made them ride on the high places. Theirs is but a frivolous imagination who oppose who supposed that Judea was so-called as being the navel or center of the earth. It is more likely that it was called high in reference to Egypt, 
and indeed it is by no means an unusual expression that those who go into Egypt are said to go down and those who come into Judea to come up. Still, I am rather deposed, disposed, low, think that by height he denotes its excellency, inasmuch as that land, on account of its illustrious endowments, was, as it were, the most noble theater in the world. Moses celebrates its fertility when he says that the people sucked honey from the rock and oil from the stones, for he means to indicate that no part of it was unproductive, since they gathered honey from the rocks and upon them also the olive grew. The same is the intention of the other figures, that they ate butter of kin and milk of sheep, by which he signifies that the land was full of rich pastures. By fat of lambs, he undoubtedly means the plumpness of their flesh, because it was not lawful to eat their actual fat. But it is not unusual to, unusual to denote by this word any kind of richness, as soon afterwards he calls the best meal or flour from which the most delicate kind of bread was made, the fat of wheat. With respect to the wine, he magnifies God's liberality by the use of poetic figure when he says that they drank of the blood of the grape. There is no doubt that he alludes to its color, yet he takes occasion to extol more highly the beneficence of God by intimating that when the juice of the grapes is expressed, it is just as if their blood flowed forth for the nutriment of men. Since then, the metaphor is taken for, from the redness of wine. I have not hesitated to translate the epithet kamir at the end of the verse, red. For in many passages, it appears to have been very delicious. And in Isaiah 27 verse 2, the word kamir is used for a vine of great preciousness and of exquisite flavor. Those who render it pure have rather taken into consideration the fact that the signification of the word. Verse 15. But Jeshurun waxed fat. Moses here severely censures the ingratitude of the people because when filled with delicacies, they began to wax wanton against God. For according to the vulgar proverb, satiety breeds violence, but this arises from man's detestable depravity, who ought rather to be inclined to humility and gentleness by the loving kindness of God since the more abundantly he supplies us with food, the more does he invite us to show forth the affection that becomes children, inasmuch as he thus more closely and familiarly declares himself to be our father. Intolerable, then, is the impiety of profane persons who increase in insolence against him when they have gorged themselves with an abundance of all good things. They are here compared to restive horses which, if they are well fed without exercise, kick under their rider and are rendered almost intractable. By using the word upright for Israel, he ironically taunts them with having departed from rectitude and reminding them of the high dignity conferred upon them more severely reproves their sin of unfaithfulness. For elsewhere, Israel is honored with the same title without any evil imputation in respect to their calling. But here, Moses reproachfully shows them how far they had departed from the pursuit of that piety to the cultivation of which they had been called. Verse 16, they invoked him to jealousy. It is only figuratively 
uh, that jealousy is attributed to God, who is free from all passions. But since men never sufficiently reflect how great pollution they contract by their idolatries, it is necessary that the grossness of the sin should be expressed in such terms as this, implying that men do no less injury to God when they transfer to others the honor due to him, and that the offense is no lighter than as if a licentious woman should provoke her husband's mind to jealousy and inflict a wound upon him by running after adulterers. This jealousy has reference to the sacred and spiritual marriage whereby God had bound his people to himself. The shui is that the Israelites were as insulting to God by their superstitions as if they had designedly provoked him. In the next verse, an amplification follows that they had transferred to devils the worship due to God alone. By the general consent of all nations, God ought to be worshipped by sacrifices. For although the Gentiles invented for themselves diverse gods, still the persuasion continued to reveal that this service was the peculiar prerogative of deity. Nothing then could be more disgraceful or detestable than to rob God of his honor and to offer it to demons. This indeed would never have been admitted by the Israelites inasmuch as they pretended that their minor gods were their advocates with the supreme and only creator of the world and did not hesitate to account as rendered to him whatever they shared among their idols. Here, however, he first of all repudiates all such mixtures whereby his holy name is unworthily profaned and suffers himself not to be associated with idols and secondly by whatever titles they may dignify their idols. He declares all false gods to be demons. Hence it follows that the sacrifices made to them are infected with sacrilege. Both of these points are worthy of careful remark, that God abominates all corruptions of his service, and also that whatever names the world may invent for its gods, there are many masks under which the devil hides himself for the deception of the simple. Furthermore, Moses reproves the folly of the Israelites in having promiscuously devoted themselves to unknown gods, just as an adulterous woman might prostitute herself indiscriminately to all comers. When he says that they came from near, it has reference to time, and is equivalent to saying that they had lately sprung up. Thirdly, it is said that these gods were not honored by their fathers, for thus their perverse love of novelty is proved against them. Inasmuch as they had not been even led by imitation of their fathers, but in their restlessness, restless innovation had procured for themselves new and unwanted gods. Not the law of piety is founded on antiquity alone, as if it were sufficient to follow the customs handed down by our ancestors, for thus any of the regions of the Gentiles might be proved true but because the genuine and faithful tradition of their fathers would be sure and approved rule for the worship of God. For Moses assumes a higher principle, that their fathers were truly and most unmistakably instructed who was the one and only God in whom they ought to trust. Yet a distinction is here to be drawn between these holy fathers and the reprobate. For the imitation of their fathers, which here seems to be deemly praiseworthy, is elsewhere severely condemned, because the Jews were carried away without discrimination after the bad examples of their fathers. Moses, therefore, here refers to no other fathers than those who were in a position to hand down what they had learned from God himself. The word fear often comprises by synecdoche, the 
the whole service of God and sometimes is applied to outward ceremonies. The word sakner, however, is here used, which means properly to stand in awe of or to dread, but still is the same sense. Verse 18, of the rock that begat thee. He again aggravates the criminality of the people by referring to their ingratitude, inasmuch as they did not fall through ignorance but willfully stifled that knowledge of God, which ought to have shone brightly in all their hearts. For this is the effect of the reproach, that they were unmindful of their rock, as much as they say as to say that they would never have given themselves up to their impious superstitions unless they had cast into voluntary oblivion that God, whom by the most conspicuous proofs they had experimentally found to be the foundation and support of their salvation. Verse 19, And when the law, Lord saw it, the seeing of God, which is mentioned here, has reference to his forbearance in judgment as if it were said that he does not act hastily and is not alienated from his children without having duly weighed their case. In the same way as it is said elsewhere, because the cry of Sodom is great, I will go down now and see whether it is so, and I will know. Genesis 18, 20 and 21. Assuredly, God does not need to make any examination since nothing escapes his eyes, however hidden it may be. But this going down, and inquiring is contrasted with preposterous haste. Thus, in this passage, Moses shows that God was wroth when he saw his sons and his daughters drawn away so faithlessly after their idols. Again, when he calls them God's children, he does not judge them to be so on account of their merits, but in reference to God's adoption, which although it was canceled as regarded themselves, still had the effect of aggravating the guilt of their ingratitude. And for the same reason, he had just said that God saw them. Moses introduces him deliberating, as it were, that the time for punishing them might be perceived to be fully come. But we must notice the degrees, for God does not at once break forth into extreme severity, but it is said to hide his face, that he, he might secretly consider what they would do. Since this is a middle course between the manifest exhibition of his grace and favor and the tokens of his wrath, God is indeed elsewhere said in many passages to hide his face when he rejects men's prayers and withdraws his aid. But here he assumes the character of a man who, when he sees that he produces no effect by acting, goes aside to some place from whence he may quietly contemplate the result. And thus God's weariness of them is expressed, for when he at length saw that his efforts to control them were thrown away, he abandons the care of them. It was a false inference which some draw from hence that men, when forsaken by God, recover themselves by the exercise of their own free will, as if God sat calmly and inactively in a watchtower, expecting what they might do inasmuch as this hiding of himself has reference only to the outward manifestation of his grace. In a word, it is a similitude taken from the conduct of men, whereby God signifies that he is overcome with weariness and will no more be the leader and guardian of the people until it shall effectually appear that they are altogether intractable. And this is gathered from the reason, which is presently added, wherein he censures their forward nature and want of faith, as much as to say that after long trial, nothing remained for him but to abandon them. Verse 21, uh, they have moved me to jealousy. 
he now proceeds further that God, after having withdrawn himself for a time, would at length be the open enemy of the people, so as to repay them in kind. And he points out the mode of this retaliation, that as they had insultingly brought into antagonism with God empty phantoms and vanities, so on his part, he would exalt against them barbarous and worthless nations. This similitude is also taken from jealous husbands, who when they perceive themselves to be despised by their adulterous wives, avenge themselves by their own armors, amours. Why God should attribute to himself the feeling of jealousy has been explained under the second commandment. Moses now only shows that it would be most, a most equitable mode of revenge, that God should insult by means of despised and ignoble nations these apostates, who had made to themselves idols in disparagement of him. The fulfillment of the sentence was manifested from time to time when they were tyrannically oppressed by the neighboring nations. It is true, indeed, that the Egyptians, the Assyrians, and the Chaldeans were included among those people of naught and foolish nations, although they were preeminent in power and wealth and famous for other splendid endowments. But it is no matter of surprise that in comparison with that dignity which God had conferred upon the Israelites, all other nations should be accounted but refused. The shui is that God's vengeance was ready whereby he would punish the vanities of his people, inasmuch as he would he could create out of nothing the enemies by whom they would be reduced, they should be reduced to nothing. There is much elegance in the illusion of Paul in which he extends this sentence further, inasmuch as when God introduced the Gentiles into his church, he stirred up the Jews to jealousy, in order they, that they might be led to repentance by a sense of their ignominy. Surely the calling of the Gentiles was exactly as if he created shadows whom he might prefer to his reprobate people. This is Romans 10 verse 19. Verse 22. For a fire is kindled in mine anger. He confirms what went before, but more generally, for he compares his anger to a burning fire, which should penetrate to the deepest abysses and should utterly consume their land, so as not to spare the very roots of the mountains. The metaphor is indeed of frequent occurrence, but here more is expressed by it than in other passages. In the same sense also, it is presently added that God would spend all his scourges and arrows upon them since when his implacable anger is at once aroused, there are no bounds to his severity. The verb asfer <laughs> may however also be taken for to heap or to super add. But I willingly follow the more received interpretation that God will not omit anything to destroy them, as if he would apply to this purpose all weapons which were at hand. Verse 24, they shall be burnt with hunger. He now descends to some peculiar modes of punishment, not indeed to enumerate them all, but only to reduce such specimens of them as to inspire the people with greater terror, inasmuch as mere generalities would not have sufficiently affected them. He mentions three especial scourges, pestilence, famine, and the sword on which the prophets constantly dilate when their object was to apply the law to the actual use of the people from whence it arose that their familiarity employ many of the expressions used by Moses. He introduces indeed other punishments, which the prophets also mention, but the sum of what he says is this, 
that the Israelites should feel that God was armed with all the punishments which were only too well known by experience by them would utterly destroy them. First, he says that they should be dried up, or rather roasted, with hunger. Instead of pestilence, he uses the word burning, uridinem, and bitter destruction. And before he speaks of the sword, declares that he would send forth beasts and serpents, so that on the one hand, open violence should assail them, and on the other, secret wiles. Amos also imitated this figure. Amos 5.18, the day of the Lord, he says, is darkness and not light, as if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him uh, to war and the cruelty of enemies, he adds another evil, terror. And this is indeed an aggravation worse than death itself when we tremble within with terror. For it would be better to be slain 10 times over bravely fighting in battle than to be consumed with constant fear as by a lingering death. Let us then learn from this passage that whatever perils surround us and whatever adversities, they are God's weapons, and that they do not occur by chance to this or that person, but are directed by his hand. Thus, it is the case that he not only stirs up enemies against us, but fierce and noisome beasts also, that he shuts up the heaven and the earth, and that he infects the atmosphere with deadly disease, that in a word he draws forth from all the elements manifold means of destruction. But if it be the fact that the godly are involved in similar punishments, since they suffer from hunger and want, and are not exempt from any evil, for even Paul acknowledges that he had himself experienced what God here denounces against those that wickedly despise him, for he says that he was troubled within, without with fightings and within with fears. This is 2 Corinthians 5, 7 verse 5. We must bear in mind that all adversities are in themselves signs of God's wrath since they derive their origin from sin, but that through God's marvelous provision it comes to pass, that to believers they are exercises of their faith and proofs of their patience. Hence, we often see God's children afflicted in common with the ungodly, but to a different end, though nevertheless all adversities are proof of God's wrath against the reprobate. On this point, I've spoken at greater length in treating the curses of the law. Verse 26. I said I would scatter them. God again represents himself in the character of a man, as if he were meditating of opposite determinations, and restrained his vehemence in consideration of the impediments he encountered. What it amounts to, however, is this, that God suspended his final judgment upon them for no other reason but because he had regard to his own glory, which would else have been subjected to the taunts of Gentiles. Hence, the Jews were reminded that, whereas they had deserved certain destruction, they were preserved on no other grounds but because God was unwilling to give the reins to the insolence of the Gentiles. The expression wrath is here used for arrogant boasting, because in their prosperity, ungodly and profane men burst forth in cruelty, unless it is preferred to render it simply irritation, in which sense it is used in 2 Kings 23. Immediately afterwards, it is explained, lest the adversaries should behave themselves strangely, nakar signifies something to be strange, sometimes to put on a different face, sometimes to acknowledge. 
Thus, I do not doubt but that Moses meant to express the arrogance of those who, in a manner, transform themselves that they may dazzle the eyes of the simple by their pomp and empty exaltation. If any approve of a different sense, lest they should separate themselves from God and arrogate to themselves what belongs to Him alone, I make no objection. And this indeed seems to agree with what follows. Our high hand, and not the Lord, has done this. For when the men indulge in such unbridled license, they go so far astray as to have nothing in common with God. Thus the judgment of God, which should have been conspicuous in these punishments, would have been put out of sight when the enemies appropriated to themselves the glory of the people's destruction. Nevertheless, the ungodly did not cease to pride themselves on their victories, as God complains by Isaiah and Habakkuk confirms, although their insolence was in some measure repressed, as long as there were some remnants of the elect people preserved. It is only figuratively that God says he feared his, this insolence, which he might have easily remedied and restrained. But I have already stated that he speaks after the manner of men, to show the Israelites that they escaped rather on account of their enemies than by their own merits. The question, however, arises how such a consultation as this could have taken place after God had determined to consume them with the fire of his wrath. I reply that the consumption there indicated was not such as totally to annihilate the nation, so that no ruins should remain as witnesses of their former state, whereas he now speaks of the destruction which should altogether blot out the name of the nations, as if it were never been chosen by God. Verse 28, For they are a nation void of counsel. The cause is assigned why God had almost blotted out altogether the memory of his people, because their faculty was incurable. For he does not merely indicate that their conduct was rash and inconsiderate, because they lacked reason mid-discretion, but that they could be by no means brought to their senses, and in fact that not one drop of sagacity existed in them. The proof of this immediately follows that the tokens of God's wrath were too clearly set before their eyes to escape their notice, unless they were utterly blind and stupid. The word lu, which they render would that, denotes commiseration rather than desire, and therefore it may be properly translated, oh, if they understood. By the expression latter, their exceeding stupidity is censured, since not even by many and long experiences were they aroused to reflect on the causes of their calamities, whereas length of time extorts some sense at last from the very dullest and almost idiotic persons. It was therefore a sign of desperate stupidity that they were still without understanding after so many years, as if by experience itself they had grown callous, when they ought to have shaken off their lethargy and to have been bestirred themselves to earnest inquiry. Justly then does Moses reproach them with not having considered even at the latter end, for not only once, nor in a single year, but by constant infliction of punishment during the long series of years, had they been instructed without profit. Verse 30. How should one chase a thousand? Of all the many tokens of God's wrath, he selects one which was peculiarly striking, for as long as God was on their side, they had put to flight mighty armies, nor had they been supported by any multitude of forces. Now when, though in great numbers, they are conquered by a few, 
This change plainly shows that they are deprived of God's aid, especially when a thousand who were wont before with a little band to rout the greatest armies gave way before ten men. Moses therefore condemns the stupidity of the people, in that it does not occur to their minds that they are rejected by God, when they are so easily overcome by a few enemies, whom they fear exceed their number. Moses, however, goes still further and says that they were sold and betrayed, inasmuch as God, having so often found them to be unworthy of his aid, not only deserted them, but made them subject to heathen nations, and as it were, sold them to be their slaves. This threat is often repeated by the prophets, and Isaiah, desiring to awake in them a hope of deliverance, tells them that God would redeem the people whom he had sold. But in case any should object that it was no matter of wonder, if the uncertain chance of war should confer on others the victory which often, as profane poet says, hovers between the two on doubtful wings, Moses anticipates the objection by declaring that unless the people should be deprived of God's aid, they could not be otherwise than successful. A comparison is therefore instituted between the true God and false gods, as though Moses had said that where the God of hosts presides, the issue of war can never be doubtful. Hence it follows that God's elect and peculiar people are exempted from the ordinary condition of nations, except insofar as it deserves to be rejected on the score of its ingratitude. He calls the unbelievers themselves to be arbiters and witnesses of this, inasmuch as they had often experienced the formidable power of God, and knew assuredly that the God of Israel was unlike their idols. It is then as, just as if he had said that this was conspicuous even to the blind, or were to cite as witnesses those who were blessed with no light on high. In thus inviting unbelievers to be judges, it is not as if he supposed that they would pronounce what was true and thoroughly understood by them, but because they must needs to be convinced by experience. For if anyone had asked the heathen whether the supreme government and power of heaven and earth were in the hands of the one God of Israel, they would never confess that their idols were mere vanity. Still, however malignantly they might detract from God's glory, Moses does not hesitate to boast, even themselves being judges, that God had magnificently exerted his unconquered might, which he refers rather to the experience of facts themselves than to their feelings. Other commentators extract a different meaning, that although unbelievers might be victorious, still God remained unaffected by it. Neither was his arm broken, because he permitted them to be afflict, to afflict the apostate Israelites. The former exposition, however, is the more appropriate one. Verse 32. For their vine is the vine of Sodom. I think it was far from the intention of Moses, as some make it to be, to refer to the punishment which the Israelites deserved, but that he rather inveighs against them their corrupt morals and obstinate disposition. But metaphorically, he calls them an offshoot from the vine of Sodom and Gomorrah, inasmuch as they resemble in their nature both those nations, as much as if they had sprung from them, just as grafts of the wine produce fruits, produce fruits similar to the stalks from which they are taken. God complains by Isaiah, when he looked for good and sweet grapes from his vineyard, it brought forth wild grapes, Isaiah 5 verse 2. And also by Jeremiah, that when he had planted a trustworthy and genuine seed, it was turned into a branches of strange wine, Jeremiah 2.22. But Moses goes further here, 
that the people were not merely a degenerate vine, but poisonous and producing nothing, but what was deadly. And therefore he adds not only that their clusters were bitter, but that their wine was the poison of dragons and asps, whereby he signifies that nothing worse or more abominable than that nation could imagine. Verse 34, Is not this laid up in store with me? Although some explain this verse as relating to their punishments, as if God asserted that various kinds of them were laid up with him, which he could produce whenever he pleased, it is more correct to understand it of their crimes. We are well aware that the ungodly, when God stays his severity, promise themselves impunity, as if his forbearance were a kind of connivance. Unless, therefore, he straightway lifts up his hand to chastise them, they imagine that all recollection of their crimes had vanished from before him. And consequently, the prophets were often remind hypocrites of the day of visitation, in order that they may not suppose that they have gained anything by the delay. For this reason, Jeremiah says that the sin of Judah is written with an iron pen and with the point of a diamond. Jeremiah 17 verse 1. Moses employs a different figure that although God may not appear as an immediate avenger, still their sins are stored up in his treasures and will be brought to light by him at the fitting season. Hence, we gathered the profitable lesson that although God may make as though he saw not dissimulate for a time, still he does not forget the iniquities, the memory of which wretched men foolishly imagine to be blotted out unless they are pursued by God's immediate vengeance. Verse 35. To me belongeth vengeance. The passage is quoted to different purposes by Paul and by the author of the epistle to the Hebrews. For Paul, with a view of persuading believers to bear injuries, patiently admonishes them to give place unto wrath, inasmuch as God declares vengeance to be his. But the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, proclaiming that God will be the avenger of impiety, confirms his declaration by this, by this testimony. Hence, it is that part of the commentators suppose that punishment is here denounced against heathen nations because they have cruelly afflicted God's pe elect people. And indeed, this appears to be the meaning of Paul's words, that injuries should be patiently endured since God claims for himself the office of avenger. But there is nothing to prevent the same statement from being accommodated to different uses. And therefore, Paul did not irrelevantly confirm his exhortation by the saying of Moses, although it literally refers to the internal chastisement of the church. Besides, the apostles are not in the habit of quoting every word from the testimonies which they adduce, but briefly remind their readers to examine more closely the passages quoted. But since God here joins the two things together, that he will punish the sins of his people and at the same time be the avenger of their oppressions, there will be nothing absurd in saying that Paul, as it were, points his finger at this passage. Still, the same explanation will be that the general declaration is accommodated to a special case, in order that believers should bear their injuries patiently and leave to God the office which he pronounces to appertain to himself, in my judgment, indeed, these words are connected with the preceding verse, for God pertinently confirms his statement that he takes account of the number of men's sins, and has them stored amongst his treasures by adding that the power and office of judging rests with himself. Inasmuch as these two things are contrary to each other, that he should be cognizant of whatever is done unrighteously and amiss, and still leave it unpunished. 
Not that it is opposed, it is opposed to God's justice to pardon sinners when they repent, but because this principle always continues firm, that God is the judge of the world for the punishment of all iniquities. Thus the confidence of hypocrites is destroyed, who flatter themselves with the hope of impunity, unless they are overtaken by immediate punishment. The clause which follows some interpreters preferred by supplying the relative in the time in which their foot shall slide, whereas Moses simply concludes that they will fall in their due time, or that although they may think they stand, their ruin or fall was not far off. And this is further confirmed by what he adds, that their day of calamity was at hand. This statement, as I have said before, often occurs in the prophets, that there is with God a fit time in which to punish sins, which he has appeared to overlook, and therefore his long-suffering detracts nothing from the judgment which he delays. In this doctrine, there is a twofold moral. First, that those whom God spares for a time should not give way to self-indulgence, and secondly, that the prosperity of the wicked should not disturb the minds of believers, but that they should allow God to decide the time and the place of executing vengeance. Inasmuch, therefore, as God delays, God's delay renders hypocrites secure so that they lull themselves to sleep in their vices, and although they hear that they will have to render account of them, thoughtlessly indulge themselves during their period of enjoyment, Moses declares that the day is near and makes haste for if God does not openly alarm them and reduce them to straits, they exult in their immunity. Hence those blasphemous sayings recorded by Isaiah, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it, and let the counsel of the Holy One draw nigh and come that we may know it. Meanwhile, we must bear in mind the words of Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2.3. Though the prophecy tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Verse 36, for the Lord shall judge his people. Some connect the sentence with what precedes it and thus take the word judge for to punish. And the apostle in the epistle to the Hebrews seems to support their opinion. Inasmuch as he proves by this testimony how fearful a thing it is to fall into the hands of a living God. But there is no reason why the apostle should not have accommodated to a different purpose what was set forth by Moses for the consolation of the godly, in order that believers might be the more heedful, the nearer they saw God to show himself as the judge of his church, unless it be perhaps preferred to construe the words of Moses thus, although God should judge his people, yet at length he will be propitiated or touched with repentance so as to temper the vehemence of his anger. Whichever way we understand them, there will be of little difference in the main, for after Moses has threatened the despisers of God and the apostates who desire to be accounted members of his household, the church, he now turns to the strangers and denounces against them that the cruelty with which they have exercised towards the Israelites should not go unpunished, because God will at length be mindful of his covenant and will pardon his elect people. If you take the word judge for to govern or to undertake their cause, the particle for must be rendered adversatively, adversatively as though it were said nevertheless or but. If we prefer the other sense, it will be equivalent to although or even though. Doubtless the object of Moses is to encourage, 
the hopes of the pious who have profited by God's chastisement by showing that he will mitigate his severity towards his elect people and in his wrath will remember mercy. Habakkuk 3 verse 2. Thus, when Moses here teaches the same thing which God afterwards more clearly unfolded to David. Uh, if thy children forsake my law, I will visit their transgressions with the rod of man. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not take away from them. Psalm 89 verse 30 and 33, 2 Samuel 7, 14 and 15. For nothing is more fitted to sustain us in afflictions than when God promises that there shall be some limit to them so that he will not utterly destroy those whom he has chosen. Whenever, therefore, the ills which we suffer tempt us to despair, let this lesson recur to our minds, that the punishments wherewith God chastises his children are temporary, since his promise will never fail, that his anger endureth but a moment. Psalm 30, verse 5. Whilst the flow of his mercy is continual, hence, too, that lesson which is especially directed to the church. For a moment I afflicted thee, but I will pursue my mercies towards thee forever. Isaiah 54, verse 8. He here calls them his servants, not because they had deserved his pardon by their obedience, but because he condescends to acknowledge them as his own. For this honor has reference to his gratuitous election, as when David says, I am thy servant and the son of thine handmaid. Psalm 116, verse 16. He assuredly arrogates nothing peculiar to himself, but only boasts that he from the womb had been of God's family, just as slaves are born into the house of their masters. At the same time, we must observe that whenever God declares that he will be merciful to his servants, he only refers to those heartily who heartily seek for reconciliation and not to the reprobate who are carried away to destruction by their desperate obstinacy. In short, to the end that God should repent of his severity, repentance is required on the part of sinners, as he teaches elsewhere. Zechariah 1 verse 3, Turn ye unto me, and I will turn unto you. Instead of shall repent, some translate the word shall console himself. Jerome, regarding the drift of the passage rather than the meaning of the word translated, shall have mercy. We must, however, remark the time which God prefixes for the exertion of his grace when all their power, virtues, shall have departed from them, and all shall be reduced to almost entire destruction, for the word hand is used for vigor. And though it were said that God would be by no means content with a light chastisement, and consequently would not be appeased until they, would, they have come to extremities, the circumstance is well worthy of notice. So flint our hopes may not fail us even in the most severe afflictions of the church, but that we may be assured that although all may be in the worst state possible, still the due season of reparation will still will come even yet. That none should remain behind or shut up or left is almost a proverbial phrase in Hebrew. As when it is said, I will cut off from Jeroboam, let him, him that is shut up and left in Israel, as well as in the city as in the country, or at home as abroad. This is again repeating, repeated, respecting the posterity of Rahab, Ahab. <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> and hence it is plain that they are mistaken, who explain this as referring to riches shut up in treasure houses and cattle dispersed through the fields. And this will st still be apparent from another passage in which the prophet unquestionably referred to this. The Lord saw the affliction of Israel as it was very bitter, for there was not any shut up nor any left. 
and inasmuch as he had determined to blot out his people, he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam. As much as to say that God, as he had promised, had pity upon his people in their extreme destitution. 2 Kings 14. Verse 37. How much more do I have? Oh, wow. Okay, a bit more. Verse 37. <laughs> and he shall say, Where are the gods? Commentators are here at issue. For some continue the paragraph as if Moses were reporting the boastings and insults of their enemies in the afflicted state of the church, whilst others consider it to be a pious exaltation, wherein the faithful will celebrate the deliverance of the church. If we suppose the enemies to be here speaking, it will be inconsistent that the word gods should be used in a plural number. Besides, what follows will proceed from their mistaken ignorance that the Israelites did eat the fat, which was not lawful for them even in their common food, and much less in the sacrifices wherein the fat was burned. The other exposition, however, is that which I rather approve of, that when the tables were turned, and God should have shown himself as the avenger of the unbeliever's cruel injustice, God's children would be at liberty to upbraid them. The word he shall say is used indefinitely for it shall be said by any or all of God's children. Just then, as unbelievers, when they see the saints afflicted, impudently ridicule their faith, so on the earlier side, Moses, when God comes to the help of his church, introduces the saints this derived derisively inquiring, where are the gods of the Gentiles? Where are all their patrons? Since all of them, as is well known, had their tutelary gods. Thus their impure and spurious sacrifices are satirized in which they ate the fat and drank the libations of wine. In short, Moses intimates that when God succors his people, their mouth is open to sing the song of triumph to the glory of the true God and to upgrade unbelievers with the false confidence whereby they are deceived. Verse 39. How long have I gone on for? Oh, it's been one... I don't know. It's been quite long. Okay, let's carry on. Verse 39. See now that even I am he. That I, even I, am he. Those who attribute the preceding verses to the unbelievers now introduce God, speaking as it were, abruptly and asserting his glory, in rebuke of their blasphemies. But it is rather a confirmation of that holy boasting which he had just dictated to the believers, when God not only bids his people lift up their voices against the idols, but himself comes forward to condemn the senselessness of the Gentiles, although the context clearly shows that he addresses himself to the faithful. After, therefore, he has exhorted his people to despise the idols, he now adds that he supplies them with ample grounds of confidence in himself. When he bids them, for when he bids them look, he signifies that no obscure manifestation of his power is before their eyes, if they will only pay attention to it. The repetition of the pronoun I is emphatic, both to arouse the people from their sluggishness and to keep their minds steadfast, lest they should waver as if in doubt. For we know that men's minds can hardly be drawn to the true knowledge of God because they wind about by circuitous courses, so as not to direct themselves straight to Him. And again, when they do apprehend God, we are aware how easily they are drawn away from Him, since the vicissitudes of things becloud them, so that they wander hither and thither in uncertainty. 
For this reason, when God has overthrown all fictitious deities, he declares that he always remains the same, whether he kills or makes alive, so that in the thick darkness or affliction, believers may not cease to look to him. Let us learn from this passage that God is defrauded of his right, unless he alone is preeminent, all idols being reduced to nothing, and also that our faith is then truly fixed in him and has firm roots, if amidst the various changes which occur, it does not stagger or waver, but surmounts such obstacles so as not to cease to hope in him even when he seems to slay us, as Job says, Job 13, 15. And surely, nothing is more unreasonable than that our faith should look round upon all events so as to depend upon them, since God would have his promises to quicken us in death itself. The close of the verse may fitly be referred to their enemies, inasmuch as God declares that none can deliver them out of his hand. Verse 40, For I lift up my hand to heaven. Others render it, When I shall have lifted up my hand and read it connectedly with the foregoing verse that God's power is destroying and preserving will be manifest if he raises up his hand to heaven. I do not doubt, however, that, but that it is the beginning of a new sentence and that God thus commences in order to refer more strongly what he immediately adds respecting the future destruction of their enemies. If, however, any prefer the adverb of time, when, I have no great objection to offer provided these clauses are connected. As soon as I have, shall have lifted up my hand to heaven, I will put to confusion the enemies of my church. To lift up the hand is explained in two ways. For some suppose it to be a manifestation of power, as men are wont, by the uplifting of their hand, to glow when they are confident in their strength, and despise their enemies. Others, however, more correctly stated to be a form of adjuration. God, who is exalted above all heavens, cannot indeed be literally said to lift up his hand. But it is no new thing for him to borrow modes of expression taken from men's common habits and customs, especially when he suddenly rises again to sublimity after having appeared for a while to sink below the level of his greatness. Certainly the words which follow contain in them an oath, I live forever, and hence it is probable that the elevation of his hand was expressive of his taking the oath. God swears by his life in a very different sense from men. Sometimes, indeed, he adopts our common modes of speaking as when he is said to swear by his soul. But here I live is tantamount to his swearing by himself or by his eternal lessons. Verse 41. If I wet my glittering sword, the conditioned particle does not leave the matter doubtful or in suspense, but must be resolved into an adverb of time as though he had said, as soon as he should take up arms, the destruction of the enemies would be certain. Not indeed that God wants arms for the overthrow of his enemies, just as when he adds directly afterwards, when my hand shall have taken hold of judgment. He does not mean that it ever is taken away from him or escapes him, but he thus designates its present and manifest operation. Since, therefore, God, when he spares his enemies, seems, as it were, to have thrown aside his weapons and to be at rest, having ceased to execute the office of judge, he declares that his arms shall be ready wherewith to destroy his enemies, and again, that then he will once more take upon him the judgment which he had seemed to lay aside, in which words he indirectly animate adverts upon the foolish security of those who conceive that his power is annihilated. 
unless he openly exerts it, and that the judgment which he postpones is altogether extinct. Verse 42. I will make my arrows drunk with blood. In these words, he describes a horrible massacre, as though he had said, There shall be no end to my vengeance, until the earth shall be full of blood and corpses. Elsewhere, also, God's sword is said to be drunk with blood, as here his arrows, when his wrath proceeds to inflict great acts of carnage, and in the same sense it is here said to devour flesh. The second, Midam, some render on account of the blood, and I admit that Mem is sometimes the causal particle, they understand it then that it would be the just recompense of their cruelty when the wicked who had slain the Israelites or led them away captive should be cut off by God. But I do not see why the same word should be expounded in two different senses, but I have no doubt, but that it is a repetition of the same thing, that God will make his arrows drunk with blood. But he says the blood both of the slain and of the captives, since when an army is put to the sword, some fall in the battle itself, whilst others maimed and wounded make an effort to escape. The conclusion of the verse is twisted into various senses. Some expound the word head by change of number, heads, as though it were said, I will cut off the heads of the enemies. It would, however, be more plausible to apply it metaphorically to the leaders, but others translate it more correctly. The beginning, not indeed with reference to time, but as though it were said, the flower or best of the multitude, according to the common phrase, from the first to the last. My interpretation of the revenges of the enemies is not those which God will inflict upon his enemies, but such are as are capital or deadly as though he had said that he would deal as an enemy with the wicked so that there should be no place for mercy. Verse 43, Rejoice, O ye nations, with his people. The appositive reading which some prefer praise him, O nations, his people supplying his word God, is constrained. For there is no incongruity in the notion that the Gentiles should celebrate the benefits which God has conferred upon his people. At any rate, it is more simple to take it thus, that so conspicuous was the favor of God toward the Israelites, that the knowledge and favor of it should diffuse itself far and wide, and be renowned even among the Gentiles. For scripture thus magnifies some of the more memorable exertions of God's power, especially when the reference is made to the redemption of the elect people and commands his praise to be proclaimed among the nations, since it would be by no means fitting that it should be confined within the narrow limits of Judea. A question, however, occurs, because Paul seems to quote this passage differently, for he says, Rejoice ye Gentiles with his people, Romans 15.10. And undoubtedly the word nakam, which Moses uses, also signifies to rejoice. If we admit that Paul took this sentence from Moses, the same spirit who spoke both by Moses and Paul is the best interpreter of his own words. Nor will it be inconsistent that the Gentiles should rejoice at the felicity of God's people. But it may be the, have been the case that Paul did not take this testimony from any particular place, but from the general teaching of Scripture. At any rate, the dignity of the people is celebrated on the ground that God esteems their blood precious and will deem their persecutors his own adversaries. The word kabbar at the end of this verse, some render to expiate, others to be propitious, which is the rendering I preferred, although I do not reject the former meaning. The verb kafar signifies that an expiation is made with sacrifice to appease God, and it is probable that Moses alludes to the legal mode of reconciliation 
Nevertheless, in my judgment, he means that God will restore his land and people to his favor. And that's it. That's it. Ah, uh, okay. All right. I'll stop there. I'll, I'll stop at verse, at that verse. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening. This has been John Calvin's take, his commentary on Deuteronomy chapter 32. I realize it's just the bit on the Songs of Moses. doesn't cover the last few paragraphs, but uh, I think I'll stop now. Thank you for listening. Take care and God bless. Bye.